0: Thank you so much, Sonia. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks so much again for coming. Like Spence said before, if you're brand new today, welcome to our church, as always, and welcome back uh, to the rest of you. We are going to transition into our sermon time here, so if you uh, have a Bible or phone app and want to turn to the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, feel free to do so. This will all be on screen here in a second, though, so uh, no, no pressure either. Uh, Today we are going to continue in chapter 7. So uh, the exact passage is chapter 7 verses 3 to 14. Um, And we're at that point now in a series, being several weeks in, where it gets a little bit hard to summarize everything. So uh, if you have not been here yet, hang tight. We'll kind of sort of do that as we go. Uh, But Samuel, uh, hence the name of the book, is uh, one of the main characters of this book. He's the likely author uh, so, hence the name of the two books of the Old Testament. But he is a, one of the bigger leader and priestly and judge figures of this section of Israel's Old Testament story. Uh, you could call him a guide. You could call him um, a priest. You could call him a narrator. I think I called him that the first week we introduced this book. He's kind of narrating from the sidelines, uh, speaking into things, sharing wisdom, also bringing some snide remarks maybe uh, here and there as well. Yes, the Bible has sarcasm in it, if you didn't know that. Um, but today is kind of like peak Samuel. Uh, today, actually in chapter 7, maybe chapter 8, is kind of when Samuel sort of peaks in terms of like the main focal point of the book, uh, at least on a physical human level. Um, and then after this, we kind of move into the time of the kings. So uh, if you don't know anything about the Bible, this is the part of history where Israel has come up out of, out of Egypt and they're existing now in the promised land, but not without problems and enemies and thorns in their side. But this also takes place before the time of the king's which will come uh, after uh, this little section here in the first part of this first book. So, um, An alternate title to today, so the title is Idolatry and Intercession, so a bit more on that later. Uh, An alternate title could be Philistine Battle Take Two, Uh, so from last week uh, being take one. Uh, If you were here last week, I think one thing I want to encourage you to do as we read today is note the differences in the people of Israel, so kind of their posture, uh, their countenance, Um, how they're acting, what they're doing, and then the outcome of this week's battle in comparison to last week's ark fiasco, if you were here. If you weren't and don't know what that means, don't worry. You don't have to know that to understand. Um, But the big thing is what changed. And uh, the Philistines are the principal enemy of Israel at this point in their history. So we met them, so to speak, uh, last week uh, as a people group, but we'll also meet them this week and then in the coming chapters um, as well. Um, but again, that big question is just what changed, because things turn out a lot better for Israel this week. Uh, the battle, the, the, the tide has turned, the battle turns out a lot better, there's victory. Um, and, uh, and so in comparison to last week, it's just notably different. And a lot of times, that's where theology pops. So if you don't know this about the Bible, there's this thing, you know, and we, of course we use this word elsewhere in like human uh, worldly literature as well, but there's this thing called juxtaposition where, you know, two things are set next to each other and their contrast and similarities uh, help say say something to us about God and about our condition as fallen sinners and about what's needed to restore us to him. And so that's going to be a big, um, I, I encourage you to ask that question, that's going to be a big thing we're going to do today is to, is to try to um, resolve this and, and answer that. So with that said, let's just read today's passage. We have about 11 verses from... 7, we'll start in verse 3 and go all the way through 14. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bales and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel at Mizpah And I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites." The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to Israel, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Okay, so uh, what we're gonna do today, kinda like we like to do a lot, and we did last week as well with Old Testament narratives, is look at this through a human and a divine lens, respectively. So today, uh, the human side of this passage will, uh, will look like the question uh, or the issue of the true nature of idolatry and why this battle, again, in comparison to last week's, why this battle turns out so differently. All right, so a little bit of background on Israel, I guess you could say, as a whole, uh, which is a big subject matter, uh, of course, in the Old Testament. Um, Israel committing idolatry is kind of like a normal Tuesday afternoon for them. Uh, And then oftentimes you see in the story there's this cycle of repenting and turning from it back to God or back to the Lord. Baals and Ashtoreths are uh, some such idols and pagan gods. They're essentially two Canaanite gods, Baal being the principal one, but Ashtoreth uh, being another. And so one of the things we need to do is 21st century Modern Western, many of us Christian readers, is to understand idolatry in in the broadest sense possible, Uh, and I mean that from the Bible, not just from like what we're reading into it, but from Scripture. But the broadest sense possible, because most of us don't have little shrines at home that we're tempted to bow down to. Uh, Maybe we do in some figurative sense, uh, and I think that's actually probably is true, but not in a very physical sense in this way. Um, But uh, idolatry is just as much a thing today in our culture. As it was then. At least understand that. Idolatry is just as much a thing today in our culture uh, for us as fallen human beings uh, as it was then. The key, I think, in today's passage that helps us to really uh, kind of draw ourselves into this and see really what idolatry is biblically uh, is this phrase here at the bottom. They put away their idols and they served the Lord only. They served the Lord only. So There's actually kind of a doubleness and a syncretism here that's being highlighted. They were worshiping the true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. They were worshiping him, which is right, of course, but they were also worshiping other gods right next to him, as if they were these little things right on the table in front of them, these little objects or or gods. Uh, They were all on the same plane. This is, again, classic. This is the definition of syncretism, uh, religious syncretism. Uh, So that's what's being highlighted. They were were worshiping uh, too many gods, uh, you could say, but they were putting things, they were raising things up uh, next to the one true God who alone is worthy of uh, all all praise and worship and trust. Uh, And not just other gods, but and this is the kind of additional key here, not just other gods, but gods made by human hands. It's really important to see. I don't have time to follow this thread all the way through Scripture, but suffice suffice it to say, it is a major thread. If we were to pull on it, we could be here all morning, but we'll pull on a little bit today, but uh, it's it's a major one. Uh, It's the true reason for the second of the Ten Commandments to not make God into an image. And why God was so angry with Israel at the, the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, because it says Israel was bowing down to and rejoicing in the works of their own hands. It's actually how Stephen in the New Testament is commenting on this story. He says really what was going on there in Exodus 32 is not that Israel was just making a golden calf, but they in rejo- or worshipping it, but they were worshipping and rejoicing in what their hands had created and made. Um, this is really important to see. This is actually the true nature of idolatry. One of the major angles on it is, um, and this is, again, why God did not want to be fashioned into an image. It's because he didn't want to be syncretized or mixed with what human beings produce or work for uh, with, with their hands. Um, so you might actually wonder, like, what's the problem here? Because if you know the story in Exodus 32, Israel was actually, when they made the golden calf, they were trying to make Yahweh or the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, into an image so they could see him and and worship him. It was actually from their heart they were trying to do something right and trying to um, have some sense of adoration and worship for him. So you might ask, well, what's the problem? They, They weren't making an image of Dagon or Baal or Ashtoreth. Well, the problem was they made it. That's the problem. They made it with their hands. Uh, Stephen also says in the same speech in Acts 7, God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. And Paul says uh, later in Acts 17, that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And later in Colossians 2, you Christians have been circumcised figuratively and spiritually with a circumcision made without human hands. That is by Christ himself, nothing you've contributed to, or before you're saved and after you're saved. And on and on and on it goes. This is just scratching the surface. So idolatry can take many shapes and does. This is not to deny that there's not a strong demonic element to it, or a darker one, or as others have said, uh, that, that, it's, that it is um, taking a good thing and making it a God thing. Uh, it certainly is that. But it is primarily, and we saw this last week in X, in. Uh, in Chapters 4 to 6, it's primarily trusting in ourselves and placing our good works above or right alongside God, which matches up again really well with what we saw last week in Israel's attempt to manipulate God, or the Ark of the Covenant, to manipulate God themselves and show, and show that they believed God's work and their work needed to be blended together together in order to bring about salvation and victory and blessing. And they lost because of that thought. They lost because they trusted themselves. And God does not syncretize with that way of thinking. So now then, it could essentially be read this way. 1 Samuel 7, as there's a difference, right? Israel has repented. They've changed. Their thinking is different. Uh, And you see it in their words, but also their, their posture. It could be read this way. Israel put away their confidence in themselves. They put away their trust in their moral acuity and religious one-upmanship. They put away their need to win and to make themselves appear better on the outside than they are on the inside. And instead, they served the Lord only. Because to do the former things, to do the things that in the first part of this paragraph, is not to serve the Lord only. It's to serve the self. And so to the question of what does a less idolatrous life look like, it looks like more crying out for help from God. It looks like more declaration that we're sinners, like Israel did in this passage. More striving for humility. More statements, I can't do this, God, I can't do this. And I think this is also what heart change looks like over the long run in the Christian Uh, It it doesn't paralyze us from love and good deeds, but it places them uh, underneath the gospel, not next to it. it. It puts so much the focus on what God has done, how he fights for us, that it breeds a type of freedom and increased confidence in him that he will do it, to quote from 1 Thessalonians 5.24, a confidence in him that he will sanctify, that he will draw near, that he will make us in his son, blameless and spotless and pure. He will save, he will persevere, He will loosen the grip of sin, and he will bear fruit in us. That's what it looks like. And so with that said, then, uh, as you take all of this and kind of set it in context with what's going on in the story, and there's a lot going on here. Uh, this is just kind of the initial, how is Israel different? How has their heart changed? How is their mindset changed? But as you place it all in the context with everything else going on with Samuel and the sacrifices and the battle, we see that it wasn't simply because of their newfound, let's call it grace-centered piety, or their perfect theology that the Philistines were routed, but because of someone else's work on their behalf. Because things were happening outside of them, right, that turned the tide of this war and saved them. Or think about it this way. If Israel was truly returning to God with all their hearts, why did they still need an intercessor? So to go back to the first part of the story, if Israel was truly, holistically, sufficiently, if that's what it was all about, turning and returning to God with all of our heart, then why was Samuel's actions still needed? Why was a sacrifice still needed? Why was water being poured out? And what's this Ebenezer thing all about, this, this, rock, of, this rock of remembrance? This is actually the, the biggest question, I think, of the passage that helps us understand the, the, the juxtaposition of this in relation to last week, but also the movement here in the change. If Israel was truly returning to God with all their hearts, why does Samuel have to do anything at all? And so this is actually meant to be very freeing. This is not a what way of thinking will save me, As important as that is, as we just talked about, this is a whose objective work for me will save me passage. And and for that, we turn to this next uh, angle or or large facet of the diamond here, which is the divine side or the spiritual side or the, the allegorical, the foreshadowing side, the prophetic side, which is to ask, where is Jesus in this story? Or to quote um, the 16th century Lutheran theologian, Johann Gerhard, uh, who says, um, the Bible is to be read in such a way as if it was written entirely with the blood of Christ. Uh, and so the, the, the divine side would then kind of come at this passage with the question, how is 1 Samuel 7 written with the blood of Jesus Christ? How is 1 Samuel 7 written with the blood of of Jesus Christ. And there are a number of angles. Uh, for starters, uh, we see Jesus, and maybe it's most obvious here. Um, we'll look at more in a second. But first, and maybe most notably or obviously, we see Jesus in Samuel, as we already have in this, in this series. We see Jesus in Samuel's intercession, his loud cries, and how he points us to how Jesus would one day come to fulfill his ministry work and his priestly role, how he would pray out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And who would intercede between God and sinners with this cries of pain and pleas for mercy. And who in that work would save us and reconcile us to God. It's actually interesting with the Ebenezer, uh, or the Rock of Remembrance, it says in verse 12 that the rock was put in between two places. Mizpah and, Shen. and that's um, an interesting thing because it plays really well with what Samuel is doing and, of course, with what Jesus would do later, uh, which is to say that this is a nod to what the rock represented, how God, again, provided mediation for people, mediation for us, how he would one day send his son, the rock of ages, as he's called elsewhere, to be raised up and to die for our sins, and, and how we would be called then to remember him through communion and many other things as well. If you're not here last week, we, t- we talked about how in the story, uh, you see how even though there's this physical battle between Israel and the Philistines happening, that um, because the ark is bringing a curse with it to both sides, Israel and Phil- Philistia kind of both lose in one sense. Um, because that's happening, you see that our ultimate problem, that we have many problems, our ultimate problem is that we cannot dwell close to God. And so all these stories then, even though they're happening kind of in the context of a a physical problem or battle of some capacity, they're meant to whisper uh, ahead or point ahead to the greater battle or problem that God is ultimately concerned about solving, the greater question. He's ultimately concerned about answering, and that is, how can we dwell with a holy God? That's actually the question, remember, last week Israel asked, is who can stand before a holy God? That's the end of chapter 6, which is again, fascinating in light of the Philistine problem that they had and the battle they just lost, the question wasn't how can we stand before the Philistines and have this problem solved as important as that may, might have been physically for them. The ultimate question is who can stand before God? And this is, the, this is the problem that God is ultimately concerned about fixing and whether it's Samuel standing in between intercessing or the rock itself going in between two places, it's, it's this Constant nod, it's this constant yearning ahead for one who would come like Samuel and the Ebenezer to stand in between God and sinners and to make them right, uh, to reconcile, to bring peace uh, with with our creator. So the mediation then is sacrificial. It's not simply a role or an office. I think that's why we also see a suckling or, or baby lamb here. That sacrifice, uh, it's a pointer ahead, again, to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, as John one twenty-nine says, and who through that routes our true enemy of sin and death. He's also in the poured out water sacrifice or drink offering. when This is when um, Israel would take an extremely valuable substance in that time, uh, like water, and they would pour it out or kind of waste it on the ground before the Lord. Um, and I actually was thinking a lot about this this week. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago to you guys, but I just finished reading Dune. Um, you guys read Dune or seen the movie? Two of you? No, I know more. more you have. Um, it, it's, if you haven't seen it, there's this, it's the, it takes place primarily on this desert planet called Arrakis or Dune. And there's these natives there called the Fremen who live there. And it's, it's, again, it's basically one giant Sahara. And to kind of allow them to live there, they wear these suits that recycles their um, bodily water. Super disgusting, but it's kind of awesome. Uh, But they wear these suits that recycles their sweat and their tears because they need every bit of that and can't just kind of let it go on the ground and waste it. Well, at one point in the story early on, when these other people come to the planet who aren't from there, uh, the Fremen er, meet them and they spit on the table. In front of them, and these people are super offended, like as we all would be. Why are you spitting at me, right? But it turns out they learn quickly that actually it's a sign of of peace and honor to say, "I'm willing to give up part of my bodily moisture for you. That's how much I want to welcome you and show you that I care about you. I'm giving you part of I'm giving you this most important substance on this planet, which is water, and part of my water in my saliva. I'm wasting it on the table for you." And you see, this is actually where the gospel is, and this is actually where the gospel is in the Old Testament sacrifice of a drink offering, is that Jesus would come one day to fulfill this idea that he would come to waste all of his water for us, on us, in love. That he would be spilt out on the ground, literally and figuratively, as he was losing his bodily fluids, as they were dripping out of him onto the ground, but figuratively as well. The great water of life, who is is becoming not that. He was becoming a desert on the cross for you and me when he died. And and one of the reasons why it's so important to see this movement in scripture from old to new and from from the old sacrifices to the new kind that Jesus fulfills, but by fulfilling he kind of changes it, is to say that there's movement in the Bible then from us wasting our resources for God To God, wasting his for us. Again, massively important to see. Uh, This reminded me of Mary Magdalene, too, in the Gospels, who poured out expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. Remember that? And wasted it on him. And the disciples are like, why are you wasting that perfume? You could sell it. It's worth, like, thousands of dollars. We could use this to care for the poor and do all kinds of other good things for it. But Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He's like, this is actually right for her to do this. And there's tons of amazing gospel lessons in that, but one of which is Mary herself is a picture of Jesus in that story. See, the point ultimately is not what can we give up for God and pour out for him and waste for him. The point is Jesus was just about to be arrested and to do that very thing for us. To waste his expensive perfume, to waste the water of his soul on the ground for us, and to come to love us then extravagantly, not stingily, God is like a, a father who takes his kids to a diner and buys the whole menu. It doesn't say just the dollar menu, you know? He's like, he's like a, a God who buys too many Christmas presents. He, he's not stingy. He's loving and gives too much. So the fact that all of this is happening, all these last four things is, are happening right before the Philistines are routed is no coincidence. Draw a line back from the victory, the military victory, back to this moment when Israel is sitting down, hoping, waiting, depending. Samuel's working and crying out and losing his voice. The water is soaking into the ground, and the lamb is spilling its blood and dying. So it is with us and with Jesus, respectively. Like, don't miss the obvious whether Samuel himself, the rock, the lamb, or the water, Israel would have had in this moment, they would have looked at all of that and said, those things aren't me or from me. Those things are outside of me. And that's the gospel for you and me. Salvation is not from us. There's one more thing I want to highlight here, and um, I'll file this under... The idea of love and scandal, because it has to do with a, a broader complication or ethical tension or interpretational stumbling block, you could say, we run into sometimes in reading these kinds of Old Testament stories. Uh, and that is the question of why is there so much seemingly God endorsed killing of the Philistines here? Maybe, um, you've, maybe you thought today or you have before that it's hard for me to reconcile this with God being the essence of love and the essence of gracious restraint and the essence of gentleness, uh, as he's described elsewhere in in the Bible. In theology, we sometimes call this the problem of Canaanite genocide because it's bigger than the Philistines. It has to do with the wiping out of so many other people groups from the land out in front of Israel, many many, uh, of whom have already been wiped out at this point in the biblical story as they were entering it. Um, So I probably just opened a can of worms here that I don't have time to fully put the lid back onto, but there are some things I think that we can say to this um, that can help us with this tension and um, ultimately bring us back to this divine side, which I'll get to in a second. Um, But a few quick things. One, um, one thing that helps us here is a big view of sin. Things are worse. We are worse than we think, and these people aren't innocent. Are not innocent here. None of us are. Um, you know, it, when we understand this in in kind of that way, the question becomes less: How could uh, God kill those people or endorse that kind of killing? Uh, and, and the question starts to become: Why aren't more people dying? It's crazy that we're even still breathing right now. And that relates to the second thing, which is God is good and just. And uh, sometimes with these things, we just have to trust Him, that His ways are perfect and holy, and that everything He does has righteousness at its center. And that includes the destruction of evil, which is a good thing. The rub here, though, again, is that we're all evil, and and I think that's where biblical theology comes in, which is maybe kind of a third thing here, and. Um, and helps. The, the, the Philistines aren't the only evil people in this story. They're a picture of the true enemy of our sin, the evil inside of us all. So this story then maybe somewhat ironically is hope for the people actually being slaughtered or those who are watching the slaughter happen. Uh, a greater story is being told here than what's being told. Israel and the Philistines, again, have actually, at the end of the day, the same enemy. They just don't always realize it. And that enemy is sin. And that problem is separation from their creator. But a greater story is being told here than what's being told. And, and here's the story. Jesus is the true and greater slaughtered Philistine. And the story of our redemption, that's the role he plays. Um, the, the discomfort you feel in this passage, you might not realize it, But the discomfort you might feel is actually over the innocent son of God being crucified. Um, if, If our discomfort is more aligned with the Philistines being killed than with Jesus being killed, that's out of order. And don't feel odd, you know, or extremely judged for thinking that way. You're normal. This is actually normal to think that at times, but you have to shift that. It's a bigger problem, much bigger problem, that the perfect, pure, innocent son of God came to be slaughtered for our sins uh, that is the ultimate offense of the bible the ultimate trajectory the ultimate final word of this passage Jesus is not just vaguely saving us from our enemy of sin he's becoming sin as second Corinthians 5 says Jesus becomes the problems of the bible he becomes the enemy he plays the role of the villain even though he's not He is, like Isaiah 53 says in prophecy about him, he's the lamb led to the slaughter. Same word. And so maybe you see how this starts to help resolve the tension so that we're not even maybe thinking that much about the apparent injustice of the Philistines dying anymore, which, again, was not an an injustice, by the way. But we're thinking about the true injustice of Jesus dying and taking on all of the darker corners of Scripture in order to save us from the same fate. So maybe you see then here how how much good Bible interpretation at the end of the day matters. Like if we say that Jesus in this passage is simply the judge and that if I do everything right, then he'll bless me and let me live. But if I do something wrong, he'll slaughter me. If we do that, then not only are we reading it wrong, we're going to get crushed by a passage that's actually meant to uplift us and give us hope. And see, instead this passage is saying, Jesus becomes the slaughtered thing for those destined to be slaughtered. It's like the the final twist here is God saying to us, I will send my son to become the enemy and take the blow for you, So, you don't have to measure yourselves against stories like these anymore and worry if you're on my side or not based simply on how well you live your life. But you see, if you don't see Jesus in the right way in this story, it's almost impossible not to wonder if that alternate reality might kind of be true. But it isn't. We are not saved by the works of our hands. We are not saved by the works of false gods, in other words, but by the scandal of the water of life himself being poured out and wasted on the ground in love for you and me. And so, as it says elsewhere in the Bible, in in many and various ways, um, the the encouragement is to put away your idols and to turn to him to be your everything. Uh, Because now we are free to think less of ourselves, and more of him, which is how it was meant to be in the very beginning. And it's that very thing that Jesus is at work here in the shadows. And, and later in the story, in the explicit, in, in the trumpets, in, in the, the realities, the explicit versions of this story. He is at work restoring. All things are being restored, even to a place here of thinking less about ourselves and more about him. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for this passage full of rich and beautiful uh, pictures of you and what you've done for us. Help us to, like the the rock of remembrance, uh, to look to you Uh, today, now, in this last song, uh, as we take communion, uh, as we leave here, as we go about our life, um, you ask us to remember the rock, the rock of ages. And like the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 10.4, Jesus, you are the rock that was struck and poured forth water uh, in that way nourished us. Uh, I love that image and how it matches beautifully with this passage, too, with the water, the water sacrifice, uh, the drink offering. Jesus, you became a desert for us. You lost everything. You lost your bodily fluids. You lost your glory on the cross. You became nothing for us nobodies that we might be adopted into your family, uh, Father. So, uh, God, help us to just lose our breath in a sense here, over the the, the beauty and the scandal of the Son of God taking on hell for us. A slaughter, not a paper cut, a slaughter uh, for those who deserve it. Uh, That's the gospel and the good news is all of that is happening with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit scheming for eternity past to share their glory with their creation. And we get to do that today uh, in a small way, also a big way, We get to do that today in community with each other, Uh, singing now in thanksgiving and praise and outright dependence on you. Amen.